The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Gary had made the confession a few days ago, something about being a sex addict, but she had not believed it. Maybe somebody had forced him to say that to me, she thought. But then, very slowly, like cold water seeping in through tiny cracks in a basement floor after consecutive days of rain, the realization entered her brain that Gary had been with prostitutes. The detectives were right. From She Married the Green River Killer by Penny Wood. Cuddle up a little closer, love Welcome back, Murder Bookies. I'm your host, Jill. Hope you're all doing well. Welcome to Episode 60, The Dark Ages, She Married the Green River Killer by Penny Wood, Part 2. Diving right into our book club, we met Judith Mawson, troubled as a girl by epilepsy, spending time in hospitals to address this and her social issues by loving parents, Helen and stepfather George. She married Lee Lynch, having two daughters, Marie and Rachel, and enduring a more and more bizarre marriage characterized by medieval attire, Lee's bisexuality, trysts with men at home, drug use, belittling, and verbal abuse of the family, but especially of daughter Marie. Divorced finally, Judith met her Prince Charming, Gary, kind, attentive, calm, and he treated her so well. Judith and Gary's wedding had been lovely in a neighbor's park-like garden surrounded by family and friends. Gary Ridgway's co-worker and friend, Jim Bailey, reflected back to the day, embarrassed that he was the only one from their company, Kenworth, to come to the wedding. He felt badly for Gary. He was aware of the jokes and whispers about him after his arrest and locker search in 1987 tied to the Green River Killer Task Force investigation. Gary was weird, but was he the Green River Killer? Kenworth employees called Gary wrong way, Ridgeway, behind his back. And I believe Judith's positive assessment about Gary's relationship with his colleagues was significantly off. But how would she know this? It certainly didn't occur to her on her wedding day. Gary and Judith honeymooned along the Oregon coast, with Judith documenting their adventures in her diary so she'd not forget a single moment. They went swimming, got sunburned, took walks on the ocean beach, flew kites, went down water slides, and did a wine and cheese tasting. Sounds rather normal, I'd say. They also exchanged jokes and I love yous, but always with Judith saying it first, never Gary. And Judith was content having married a man so perfect for her after all those terrible years with Lee. They continued sharing in depth about their pasts now that they were married, with Judith speaking of her mom and epilepsy. Gary shared that he'd had a rather happy childhood, very traditional. His mom was a great cook, his dad, a bus driver, the provider. Middle child, Gary had an older brother, Greg, and a younger one, Ed. He confided in Judith that there was another brother. His dad had had him with another woman, but this should never, ever be discussed, and Judith complied. They spoke of their common difficulties in school with reading and writing. Gary had been two years late in graduating from Tyree High School. He got drafted into the Navy and admitted to her that he'd fathered a child in Vietnam. Like all the guys, he'd visited prostitutes but he never stayed in touch, grinning as he told her his dark secret. He married Claudia in San Diego, never going into detail other than she had cheated on him and they were divorced by the time he was 23. Second wife, Marcia, was Matthew's mom and they married when he was 24. He had few nice things to say about her and they divorced when he was 31. But they agreed to move forward, focusing on their future 
aligning their goals, owning a home, taking proper care of it, having gardens and landscaping, and then selling it and upgrading the typical American dream. They'd work hard, they'd save money, and Gary would retire at 55 from Kenworth. They'd sell it all, get a big motorhome, and begin a great adventure. And this plan was enacted and remained the foundation for their relationship for the next 14 years. They now explored their sexuality more freely. Waking, they'd make love, then enjoy breakfast, go swimming, and return to the camper for lunch and more afternoon delight. If they were alone at the hot tub at an RV park, they would enjoy each other again. And this was a new huge deal to Judith, being desired by a man. She felt more feminine to his masculinity than ever before. They returned home rested and found out that Rachel was getting married. Life was really good. Feeling secure, safe, healthy, they shared holidays with the in-laws, and Judith became very close to her sister-in-law, Tina, Ed's wife. In December 1988, a two-hour special program, Manhunt Live, A Chance to End the Nightmare, narrated by Patrick Duffy, who played Bobby Ewing on the TV show Dallas, was watched by 50 million people on The Green River Killer. Six months earlier, the body of Cindy Ann Smith was found in Auburn, Washington. A month before Judith's wedding, Deborah Lorraine Estes' body had been found as well. The show offered a $100,000 reward. With now 40 women dead, it was time to catch a killer. One man was arrested based on the tips, but he was eventually cleared. And uh, Gary and Judith missed the broadcast. Hmm. Cindy Ann Smith was mentioned in the show. Living in California, Cindy left home by 17 to her mom's displeasure. But in March 1984, Cindy called and told the family she was engaged. She was coming home to celebrate. Her mom, Joan Mackey, recalled, quote, We picked her up at the airport and we had the most wonderful time that night. She showed me her ring, and in the morning, she wanted to go see her brother, who also lived in the SeaTac area. She went out the door, and she didn't even have a chance to unpack her suitcase, end quote. Cindy never returned. Deborah Lorraine Estes, capricious, a very good friend, and everyone knew Debbie loved horses, but she was stubborn and headstrong and occasionally wild. At 10, she figured out how to get birth control pills from the local clinic. By 12, after fighting with her parents, she became a chronic runaway. By 1982, she swiped $250 from her mom and began living out of cheap hotels with an older boyfriend who quickly became her pimp. Sexually assaulted in September, Debbie met with the police to file charges against her rapist. Detectives say she was eager to testify against him in court but that was the last time she was seen alive. She was 15 years old. Then Judith hurt herself. At the daycare, one day Judith bent wrong, slipping a disc in her back. Incapacitated in terrible pain, she spent three months in traction. This triggered horrible flashbacks to being in the mental hospital. She felt fortunate that Gary had retrieved her bed from storage after he'd returned his bed to his demanding ex-girlfriend, Roxanne. They had actually been engaged, but Roxanne abruptly broke it off. Now, Roxanne and Gary occasionally spoke, but Judith wasn't jealous. Roxanne wanted her bed back, and Gary kindly obliged her. Now, detectives would later explain to Judith that Gary had deliberately gotten rid of the bed because he had murdered victims in it. Would I question Gary on the bed? I just don't think so. Gary was attentive, caring for Judith, and he put her mind at ease. He wasn't mad because she wasn't working either. He actually suggested why didn't she just stay at home? He was making a good salary, and then she could care for her grandkids. In Judith's eyes, Gary was compassionate, understanding, and she loved his willingness to take care of her. So she resumed being a stay-at-home wife but under very different circumstances than when she had with Lee. She also began taking care of finances, updating the checkbook and such. They fell into a pattern. Gary would turn over his paychecks, 
and this is long before direct deposit. Judith would make the deposits, pay the bills, and deposit money into their savings account. They were completely in sync on financial matters, never having a money fight in all their marriage years. Gary's only gripe was paying child support to Marcia, whom he detested. But Judith tried to ease this, reminding him that eventually Matthew would turn 18. I hope you're picking up on the normality of the Ridgeway life and how fortunate Judith felt to have met and married Gary. She perceived him in the best light, which is how most of us see our partners. I am going into some detail here on how they lived, because many of us wonder, how does a serial killer live day to day? How could she not have known? Well, this is how. It's all pretty normal. Here are the answers. He's a manipulative but average guy. His compartmentalization is absolute. His two worlds never collide. So who would make that ginormous leap from, oh, you know, Gary went to a union meeting or sold a bed to he's a serial killer? Well, no one makes that leap. And to be fair, before Gary and Judith married, there was that visit by the police inquiring about Gary, and it would have given me pause, but I'm horribly suspicious. I have to point this out too. Listen to the stories of the Green River Killers victims. They run parallel. Now, this isn't judgment, it's victimology. You'll know judgment because I'll tell you when I'm judging. Many of these young women were extremely high risk, living precariously, runaways who dropped out of school, a huge mistake. No education leaves you financially vulnerable forever. Toss in drugs and alcohol, which are added expenses, their odds get worse. Throw in having a baby with no support or family, daunting under the best circumstances. And anyone who wants to get you into a relationship with a man who wants to pimp you out, hard, absolute line, no. You do not. No exceptions. This is not a red flag. It is not a red mountain. It is a frigging red galaxy. You don't date pimps. This is not love. Love does not hurt. And this is judgment. And I am being preachy, but too bad because I am right. I do not tolerate psychological abuse. I certainly don't tolerate physical abuse. Not ever, even if it gets uncomfortable. And that is the price for truth sometimes. Just do not choose a path that gets you to be a victim on a true crime book podcast. I do not want to talk about you. Okay. Stretching a dollar became a game for Gary and Judith both raised by frugal parents. They bought things on sale. They picked up food at the food bank. Hey, it's free. And of course, their love of bargains at garage sales. Gary would fix items and resell them later. They bought their clothes there too, or in thrift stores and swap meets. Gary taught Judith the fine art of selling or swapping. For example, he explained, if the price was 25 cents, someone will ask you to take five. Well, counter with how about 15? So Judith takes this to heart and became very good at it. And this buying and selling became a core part of their marriage dynamic. On special occasions, Judith and Mary, Gary's mom, would go to special by invitation only shopping events at JCPenney, where Mary encouraged Judith to spend a little on herself. Meals were also simple and inexpensive. Gary believed that, quote, we eat to live, we don't live to eat, end quote. This was why people got fat and he preferred to be trim. Now, I have to disagree. I love to eat good food, all right? But hey, again, to each his own. They ate leftovers, every morsel, and some nights dinner was a can of soup. Dining out was a huge treat and they used discount coupons, went to all-you-can-eat buffets and early bird specials. One day, going out to get hamburgers, Judith asked Gary what a prostitute looked like, and did she ever see one and not realize it? Well, they were driving along Highway 99, and Gary offered to find one for her, and it didn't take long as he pointed out to a woman in high heels and fishnet stockings. Thunderstruck, she was shocked that she was dressed like that in the middle of the day. Now, I have to ask, why did prostitutes pop into Judith's mind like that? Hmm. Gary Insight. When someone left the job at Kenworth, 
he offered to do the extra work of cleaning out the locker. Gary would take the now unused objects and sell them at their garage sales. And Judith thought he was so smart, admiring him for helping out. Years later, she found out that Gary was stealing these objects. He pilfered boxes of coveralls, safety glasses, rolls of masking tape for resale. Gary did accept all overtime offers, with Judith so proud of his efforts to support her. Sometimes he was exhausted after long hours, and he declined having sex. Once, Judith tried to entice him to change his mind, but he firmly pushed her away. No, I said not tonight, Judith. Sounds more like he'd been having sex with prostitutes, not overtime. At a swap meet, Judith and Gary acquired their first kitty that they named Fluffy. In their second year of marriage, they sold their house, buying a larger one in Des Moines. As the Des Moines newspaper headline reported, another female body had been found in a shallow grade in a woody area by the SeaTac airport. The Green River Killer was still out there strangling women. One of those strangled was 17-year-old Sandra Gabbert. In 1983, a high school basketball star abruptly dropped out of school because she was bored. Known to be friendly, Sandra was confident, charming, free spirit that gave people the impression she didn't take herself all that seriously. Living with her boyfriend, Sandra barely scraped enough money together to pay for their fast food and hotel with sex work supporting them. Was he in the sex trade too, or was he just pimping out Sandra? Her mother, Nancy McIntyre, last saw Sandra when they met for lunch at a Mexican restaurant. Sandra was excited about her upcoming trip to San Francisco and Hollywood, but she never got to go and was last seen on April 17, 1983. Also strangled was Yvonne Shelley Antosh. She had come to Seattle from British Columbia and was staying at a motel with a childhood friend. She was last seen in May 1983 at the Ben Carroll Motel, and I, I wish I could have found out more about Shelley. Meanwhile, Gary is receiving perfect attendance awards, earning Kenilworth jackets and gift certificates. Judith adored her husband who worked so hard. She encouraged him to apply for open management positions, but he didn't want to deal with people and their problems, even if it came with more money. Gary did get more involved with the union, attending meetings, which gave Judith a queasy sense of deja vu. Remember, ex-husband Lee attended union meetings, which was a euphemism for him having sex with other men. Nights that Gary was home, they'd watch TV and eat popcorn, almost like being at the movies. Also, something odd Judith noticed about Gary. When they watched, quote, movies containing scenes with a physical assault on women, someone being killed, or a bloody military battle, Gary was wiggling and shifting in his seat next to her, thinking he must have some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder from Vietnam. She reassuredly put her hand on Gary's thigh to calm him. The violent scenes must have upset him, but her reassuring hand never helped. Gary would fidget more, taking in deep breaths. When Judith glanced over and saw tears welling in his eyes, he jumped up going into the kitchen, end quote. She never pressed him about what he was going through. Penny Pincher, occasionally Gary would splurge on something he really wanted, buying two Suzuki dirt bikes. Helmets on, Judith threw her head back and laughed aloud. She loved it, and the bikes became a regular part of their camping. They also upgraded their old camper for a new one with a bathroom. In June, they celebrated their wedding anniversary, reusing cards, writing new love notes while rereading the previous ones. She loved this and loved her wonderful, faithful husband. Penny Wood writes that, quote, Interestingly, as the Ridgeway couple became busier with their steps working towards the ultimate goal of retiring, the Green River Killer slowed down. Over the same period, the killer snuffed out the lives of only eight of 48 victims he ultimately took credit for after his final arrest, end quote. I think it's likely that the happiness orbit that Judith exuded did soothe the savage beast in Gary. I think she may have saved lives. Their 10th anniversary was bittersweet, as Gary's dad had just died after a long bout with Alzheimer's disease. Gary spent a lot of time with his folks, and Judith would occasionally go visit her parents, 
Gary making sure she'd get a break from all the caregiving. That June, they threw a party to celebrate. Judith felt surrounded by a good circle of supportive people, friends, and relatives. Life became routine, buying, fixing, selling. The camper was sold and replaced with a motorhome, which was upgraded to an almost new motorhome a few years later. They bought their dream house in Auburn, near Lake Geneva. They got their poodles, referring to them as their children. With a beautiful park-like backyard, Judith could garden till her heart's desire, with Gary helping by trimming branches and putting down mulch. While in her beautiful garden, Judith felt closest to God. She prayed, quote, Dear Lord, you made me well. You took away my seizures. Then you brought me a good husband. I am so thankful. I can never stop thanking you for my blessings, end quote. And sometimes she would sing her favorite hymn, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the rose. June 2001, Oscar, Judith's favorite poodle, died in her arms. Distraught, she and Gary buried him in the backyard as she mourned for her sweet boy. Then on August 15th, after returning from a birthday party for Judith, they played a message left on the answering machine, which is how you left message for people before texting. Quote, mom just died, end quote. Shocked, Mary was being treated for cancer, but this still took them by surprise, and Mary had died on Judith's birthday. Gary grieved far more deeply for his mother than he had his father. She had been the family's epicenter. Judith took cuttings from Mary's garden and shared them with Gary's siblings, so they'd all have something of Mary's. And Judith vowed that she would try to give Gary the love, the support, the pride and encouragement that Mary had taking on this heavy mantle. In November, the phone rang and Judith heard a voice asking, are you Mrs. Ridgway? Gary had been arrested, sending her senses reeling, waiting nerve-wracked hours before she was notified to get Gary from the police station was torture. He called and said he was at the Kmart where he jogged to leaving the police station because it was too embarrassing to be picked up there. His story, quote, Judith, honey, all I was doing, I pulled over on Highway 99 because I forgot to put my tailgate up. It was down and a cop stopped. Anyway, they took me for questioning, probably because they thought I was someone else. You know, it's crazy on Highway 99. People are always getting stopped. Gary smiled big and stared into Judith's eyes, his smile soaking up all her hysterical thoughts like a big sponge. She believed him, end quote. They'd head home and would get his truck later. What was Gary arrested for when Judith got that call? Solicitation of a prostitute. Now, there is having faith in someone, and then there is blind faith. And I do not mean to be critical, truly. The world of hurt about to dump down on Judith is ungodly unfair. But I'm also being honest in describing what I see. Thanksgiving came everyone appreciative of what they had. And then on November 30th, 2001, Gary Ridgway, 52 years old, Caucasian truck painter from Auburn, husband to Judith, father of Matthew, was arrested, his DNA linking him to three victims of the Green River Killer. He never came home again, and my heart breaks for Judith, Matthew, Greg, wife Doreen, Ed, and Tina. No one saw this coming. The arrest. Detective Sue Peters and Matthew Haney were deep into the most important case of their careers, the biggest true crime case in Washington history, and now were trying to interview Judith Ridgway. Between the constant ringing phones as the Ridgway family and friends tried to reach Judith, with reporters outside, they had to get Judith out of the house. Penny Wood writes, quote, it was a blessing for Judith that her body was in full battle mode. She had recognized the signs. With every cell in her body fighting off the appending seizure, her mind did not have to acknowledge the horrific news that the detectives had just delivered. Not yet, end quote. Judith agreed to go to the hotel, but she begged the detectives to feed her kitties and don't let them go outside or they'd get lost. Bag packed, Judith was shuffled through the back door of the Red Lion Inn a large fancy hotel she never thought she'd be able to afford. Sister-in-law Tina was there, and they embraced long 
anguished voice saying, oh my God, oh my God, as Judith cried. Detective Peters told her not to speak to reporters, handing her a card. If she needed anything, call her. A sobbing Judith tried to answer Tina's questions, but she was incoherent in complete disbelief. After hours of crying, she finally collapsed, falling into a restless sleep. The seizure never happened, thankfully. As she slept, Tina turned on the TV in abject amazement as story after story ran on Gary. Our Gary? Her husband's brother, the serial killer. Judith avoided the TV because listening made her nauseous. She'd cry for hours, then crash, wake, cry, and collapse, utterly exhausted. How long would she be in this hotel? Where was Gary? What would she find outside when she emerged? After three days, Tina had to go home, and Judith understood, thankful she'd been able to spend time with her at all. Alone, Judith phoned eldest daughter Marie, who came to stay with her at the hotel, and she arrived with brown hair dye. Quote, Mom, we need to color your hair. I don't want people recognizing you. We've got to make you look different. People saw you on the news. End quote. They discussed Gary. Neither could believe this. It was so creepy. It's really him? What was Judith going to do? Tired and hungry, Judith hadn't eaten little since she arrived. And Marie was appalled. Hadn't she gotten room service? Hesitating, Judith said, well, no, she didn't have that kind of money. Exasperated, Marie told her that the police were covering the tap. Order anything you want. And they did, treating themselves to expensive entrees and double desserts, finding a moment's peace in the chaos. Marie distracted her with a movie although Judith has no idea which one. Judith called Detective Peters. She needed clean clothes. And by the way, when could she come home? Upsetting, it would be at least a few more days. Emboldened by Marie's splurge, Judith left her room thinking exercise and walking might help. And there in the hallway was Matthew. Hurrying together, hugging tightly, it dawned on Judith that Matthew was experiencing the same shock, dismay, and loss she was. Now a full-grown man, Matthew was serving in the military. Also at the hotel were his wife and her parents. Poor Matthew, he so admired his dad. And after a brief conversation, they all returned to their rooms, never discussing Gary. Detective Peters took Judith to get more clothes, with her entirely unprepared for what greeted her at her home. Law enforcement and canvas tents were everywhere. A diesel engine roared in the backyard, digging up the lawn. Bushes, trees were ripped out of the ground. Inside, it looked like a hurricane had struck. Closets, drawers, cupboards open. Household items scattered all over in piles. Aliens walking around in spacesuits with clipboards. Judith had to put rubber gloves and plastic booties on so she'd not contaminate the investigation in her own house. She recalled Gary's 1987 arrest 14 years earlier, the whole thing a big mistake. This had to be another mistake. They were really out to get Gary, she thought. Toting more clothes, Judith returned to the hotel. As it occurred to her, she'd not checked on the cats. A week later, Peters and Haney would tell her she could go home. Momentary relief quickly evaporated when she realized her car had been impounded as evidence. She would need to get a new one with a furious Marie raging at the detectives. Peters accompanied Judith inside the beautiful home she'd shared with Gary. The carpet had huge chunks missing. Their bed was completely taken apart. Her underwear strewn across the floor. Her jewelry laid out. Some of her favorites from Lee's grandmother were missing. Piles and piles of mess everywhere. Among other things, the police had looked for souvenirs, jewelry, or items Gary gave Judith that may have belonged to the victims. Outside, her garden, her sanctuary of peace and prayer, was obliviated. Feet trampled Mary and Judith's flowers, and they had dug up Oscar, her poor fur baby, and reburied him. Outraged, angry, feeling victimized, Judith raged, lashing out. Her oldest granddaughter, Heather, came to help, folding clothes and returning them to drawers and closets. As much as Judith tried to launch into cleanup mode, she was sluggish, slow, wandering room to room. One cat returned, but the other was lost. 
She played the answering machine. Her mom called. Her best friend, wife of one of Gary's co-workers, Linda Bailey, who left several concerned messages. Judith ate popcorn and drank from her box of wine in the fridge as reality became blurrier, narrowing into blackout. Days passed. When Heather had to leave, Judith called Linda, who took charge, never sharing a word about what she thought of Gary. Worried, Linda saw that Judith was drinking way too much wine. She made her eat real food. Judith's incoherent mumbling, coupled with the pacing room-to-room, worried Linda. Unable to rest, Judith began taking sleeping pills, dating back to her back when she slipped that disc. The first week Linda was at Judith's, Gary called. Quote, Judith, you have to believe me, I did nothing to those women, end quote, as Judith felt a jab of hope. Believing him, she and his brothers, Greg and Ed, were coming to visit. Heading home, Linda kindly advised Judith to stop with the wine and to see a doctor for her depression. At the doctor's, Judith spilled her guts about the stress that she was under, and he stopped her, warning her not to say something she might regret. Excuse me? I mean, how disappointing. Was the doctor fearing being called as a witness or something? But Judith took the prescribed medications, still unable to focus, moving aimlessly, not completing tasks, and passing out in front of the TV with her wine and popcorn, while reassuring Linda that she wasn't drinking. Gary called one day, still denying he'd killed any of the women. But he did have an admission. He had a sex problem, an addiction, and he had been seeing prostitutes. Judith said she had to go and hung up. No, she told herself. Someone made him say that. It couldn't be true. And this was denial. Later, Judith would learn Gary had killed eight young women in their time together. These were Patricia Barzik, who was 19 when she was last seen on October 11, 1986. She was a sweet child who often goofed around by putting olives on her fingertips. A recent graduate of culinary school, Patricia dreamed one day owning her own bakery where she could craft beautiful wedding cakes. Like most girls Patricia's age, Patricia was a tad gullible when it came to men. But she was on the right track and she was adored by her family, who described her, quote, Patty was the baby in my family with two brothers and sisters. She was a loving and outgoing girl. She loved life, puppies, and kittens, loved people who were down and out. And I and my family will never forget her laughter, her smile, her outlook on life, and her bubbly personality, end quote. Jackie Sanders, the aunt of Roberta Bobby Joe Hayes, would say that Bobby Joe, quote, wasn't allowed to be a child, end quote. She was forced to grow up early as her mother phased in and out of her life, leaving a young Bobby Joe to do the cooking, cleaning, and caring for her twin brothers. Brother Don Morrison described his sister as feisty and strong-willed. When she was about seven, she'd hit him over the head with a ukulele. Bobby Joe had her first baby when she was 15. By 21, she had five. All of her kids were placed in care of the state and were adopted. Despite turning to a life on the streets, Bobby Joe always came home for birthdays and holidays, and the last time anyone heard from the 21-year-old in 1987, she had planned to hitchhike to California. She never got there. In 1966, at age 11, Marta Reeves came to the United States from Hungary with her parents. Later, she married and they had four daughters, with Marta dropping out of college to care for them. By 1990, Marta, now 36, was addicted to crack cocaine, resulting in a separation from her husband and girls. To pay for her habit, she resorted to sex work. Arrested for prostitution twice in February, a 90-day jail sentence was deferred if she stayed out of areas of prostitution within the city limits. Her family last heard from Marta on March 5th, with her husband reporting her missing. Marta's daughter remembers their mother as a smart and hardworking woman. Born in Montana to Lou Ann Yellowrobe, Patricia was the eldest of 10 children. She was a member of the Chippewa Cree Nation and registered at the Rocky Boys Indian Reservation. Growing up, Patricia was adored by her family and happily took care of her siblings as well as her blind grandma, 
Patricia acted as her eyes, gently leading her wherever she needed to go. A younger sister said that Patricia was, quote, always fun. She took care of me. I could talk to her. She took me to the fair and on shopping sprees, and she taught me how to drive, end quote. Patricia also had her struggles with alcohol and drugs. By 1998, she was 38 and living a nomadic lifestyle and was last seen in August. Judith was lost. Wandering the house, missing Gary, she went into his area, the garage, his tools, his supplies, his lawnmower. Opening drawers, she saw nails, screwdrivers, thumbtacks, and then froze. Condoms, packs of condoms, intentionally hidden. She and Gary never used condoms. Quote, the realization entered her brain that Gary had been with prostitutes. The detectives were right. He lied to her. Her perfect smiling husband had cheated on her. The bastard. The man she loved with every cell in her body was a liar. End quote. Backing away from the garage tool bench, she grabbed the axe from the corner and went at it. She attacked the bench with gusto, swinging, shattering boxes, glass, shelves. Finally, spent, falling to her knees, sobbing, Judith asked, Why? How could you do this to me, Gary? How come I wasn't enough for you? Why? Why did you go see filthy prostitutes? Crying, cursing. This was the ultimate betrayal. Now, Judith deliberately turned on the TV. She wanted to hear the news reports from her newfound perspective that her husband was a liar and a cheat. Sipping wine, Judith took her anti-anxiety meds, muscle relaxants, and doubled her usual number of sleeping pills. She quickly fell asleep. Around midnight, she roused and went to go to bed, shut off the lights, and fell down the stairs, smacking each one with her head in their tri-level home. Well, she was alive. Seizure? No. She recalled falling. She could move her hand, her head, her legs, and collapsed into her bed. Majorly hungover, every part of her body hurting. The next morning, she called Linda, confessing that she'd been drinking way too much and that she'd fallen and was losing her mind. Scared to death, Linda listened and promised that they would figure it out. Money. She had no income without Gary, just two or three of his uncashed paychecks. With help getting these cashed, momentary relief flooded Judith, who immediately paid some bills. 2002 was almost here. She needed a car. She needed a plan. What would she do with the house? She also went to see Gary, taking the bus, her first time ever seeing him arrested in jail. She had never gone to the police station before. This felt very different, devastatingly real, thick glass separating them like he was in a zoo. Crying, he looked small, he wasn't eating, he'd aged. She put her hand up to the glass and had to tell him to do the same, but he was uncomfortable and quickly dropped it. He told her they steal things in here, so don't bring him anything. Depressed and bewildered, she began going weekly with Greg Ridgway and his wife, Doreen. Greg told her, quote, we have to keep up these visits, show solidarity. We do not want people thinking we're not supporting Gary, end quote. Greg was the one who handled all the family emergencies, his parents' wills, and he was looking for a good defense attorney for Gary, quote, it's just a matter of time before they get him released, end quote. Gary would suggest that Judith cash out their IRA, $22,000, to help pay bills. Going to the bank, Judith felt ashamed. She felt eyes on her, accusations. That's the Green River Killer's wife. Were they laughing? She'd buy a small used car, but she rarely went anywhere, just too self-conscious. After sorting through the materials taken from the Ridgeway home, the detectives came to speak with Judith again. They had reports of Gary being seen with a tall brunette woman when he was camping in the motorhome, introducing her as Mrs. Ridgeway. Any idea who she might be? Quietly dying inside, Judith had no idea and croaked, quote, No, I don't know anyone who looks like that. I guess he might have had time to do that when I went to stay with my parents for the weekend. End quote. Yeah, if you recall, 
These were the weekends when Gary was taking care of his parents and she was relieved of caretaker duty. They asked, Judith, did you recall a place called Bear Creek and a couple that you met? Well, she did. Lovely couple. It was a beautiful place. They'd exchanged phone numbers and addresses, but just never connected. Had Judith known that the woman was found dead along a country road not long after they met? Did she think Gary could have had anything to do with her death? Falling through time and space, Judith gasped, no, my God, that's terrible. They also shared details of Gary picking up prostitutes. He'd cruise up, weigh $40, pick her up, have sex, and that he was a regular visitor. Judith said she'd had no idea, crushed once again. Every time they came to the house, Judith felt devastated all over again. I believe they are trying to turn her against Gary and perhaps get her to tell them something incriminating. Not that she didn't need to know what he was up to. She absolutely did. But gaining her confidence would be something useful to the police. And getting her angry at Gary, that could have been the goal. Gary told Judith to divorce him. Heartsick, she listened as he explained the need to protect her. She should change her name. She should talk to Linda and Jim Bailey. And Linda agreed. It was time for Judith to think about her life and what she was going to do. And Linda was willing to help. This was put into motion, Judith calling a real estate attorney they'd used to buy and sell their homes. Through Judith's tears, she promised to help. And when the $22,000 was gone, Judith accepted that she'd have to sell the house, which was now the infamous Green River Killer's house. It wouldn't be easy, but it went on the market in March of 2002. Family came over to help her purge what was not necessary, preparing for a huge garage sale. As Judith silently listened, Gary's aunt, Mary's sister, told Judith she wasn't surprised Gary did all those terrible things because he was just like his father. She'd never liked Tom. He was a womanizer, always seeing prostitutes. He was a truck driver, after all. Remembering Tom Ridgway, Judith remembered him being pleasant enough. But, you know, she had been uncomfortable being alone with him. Once, going to the mailbox, he told her raunchy jokes she didn't get, and Judith had been very happy to rejoin the rest of the family. Scared of the vandalism her house was subjected to, fears of kooks coming over, given the massive media coverage of the case, Judith accepted an offer of Rick, a friend of Gary's, for her to rent a room at his house, plenty big since his wife had passed. With some of her belongings in a storage unit, she moved into Rick's with his mother welcoming her. But she did an abrupt 180, attacking Judith, who was never going to replace her daughter-in-law. She needed to get the hell out. Rick was cowered by his mother, and Judith realized that this was never going to work out. But in the meantime, Rick was a good friend who listened and didn't judge, like his mom. With family already stretched to their emotional and financial limits, Judith was at a loss of where to live. When a miracle happened, a 92-year-old woman from their church offered to take her in. So grateful, Judith moved. But it only lasted two weeks when she had to get out. The granddaughter was coming to live with grandma and they needed Judith's room back. Judith now found herself officially homeless, living out of her car. Driving aimlessly around during the day, she parked when the crying became too intense to be safe. She changed her clothes in the dark, dank storage unit and she had no will to live. Quote, it was as if her life were being canceled, deleted like a message on her own answering machine. End quote. And March 29, 2002, Kings County Superior Court Judge Richard Jones was selected to try the complicated Green River case against Gary Ridgway. And it was announced a few weeks later, Prosecutor Norm Maling would be seeking the death penalty. Days passed when another elderly woman called Grandma M offered Judith a room in her home. Not only did she have a bed to sleep in now, but a bathroom to wash in. Grandma M was a gentle, caring woman who nurtured Judith's battered soul. She was there for three months when Judith's mother called. Her father had cancer, couldn't drive, and they needed her to move in and help. Judith remained at her parents' home for about a year and cut off all but business calls with Gary. Good for you, Judith. She finally accepted he'd been a liar and a cheat. But the killing, 
She was still in denial, with Gary vehemently insisting he wasn't a killer. There was nothing in their history to suggest he was a violent murderer. He loved their poodles. He'd help babysit the grandkids. He didn't hunt or fish. Come September, their divorce was finalized and she readopted her maiden name, Mawson. And in November, one year since Gary's arrest, their house sold for $250,000. Their divorce decree dictated that the mortgage would be paid off and 60% of the proceeds would go to Judith and 40% to Gary. So Judith was left with $104,000. Gary's money immediately went to his defense attorney, Mr. Tony Savage. They are Perry Mason, as brother-in-law Greg explained. Relief. She had a place to live, and the financial burden was lifted. But unexpectedly, she found no peace as a battle royale erupted between her and Greg and Doreen. She was expected to give her share of her money to Gary for his defense. I mean, surely she'd do the right thing. And Judith said, no, she had to get back on her feet. She had to take care of herself. Well, Greg suggested that she could keep some of the money, but the rest needed to go to the defense fund. Now she got angry. No, but but she's Gary's wife. Quote, no, I said, no, this is not my problem. Why should I have to pay Gary's lawyers? Well, because you're his wife, Greg countered. No, I'm not. I'm not. Not anymore. End quote. When Judith came by Greg and Doreen's home to pick up her mail, which was delivered there to keep the press off her track, Greg and Doreen had changed the locks. They were stressed out and her coming around was too upsetting. So the Ridgeways turned their back on Judith, leaving her hurt and betrayed once again sending her spiraling into a deep depression. Linda Bailey's support and care probably kept Judith alive for the next year. And in November 2003, Gary pled guilty to the murder of 48 women. For the last year, the defense and prosecution had meant resulting in a deal. If Gary would take detectives to the places he dumped the bodies, leading to the identification of victims, the prosecution would accept a life sentence, removing the death penalty from the table. The outrage was immediate and severe. 48 women dead? If the death penalty wasn't right for this case, what case would it be right for? Now, this is back in 2003. And since then, I can think of a dozen other cases that have made a similar arrangement. But this was a first. And during this period, Gary admitted he specifically targeted sex workers because he thought he would get away with it, quote, they wouldn't be missed, end quote. He believed he was doing law enforcement a favor. They failed to control them, but Gary Ridgway, he could. He'd get rid of them. Later, it was revealed that Gary had been housed secretly at the task force office near the Boeing field, where he answered questions upon questions for weeks upon weeks. They took him to Enumclaw, a place where he and Judith had gone camping and rode dirt bikes. The remains of Pammy Avent were located there. She had lived in the Seattle area and was only 16 years old. They went to Suquamish Pass, finding April Dawn Buttram, 20 years after she vanished. Living in Spokane, Dawn, as she was called, was feisty and rebelling as a teenager. She dropped out of school and began partying. Her mom caught her climbing out the window one night, suitcase in hand, and just threw up her hands. She told her, quote, at least have the guts to leave by the front door. And she did, and never came back, end quote. Dawn was last seen on August 1983 in Seattle. The 17-year-old was planning to go back to Spokane to withdraw savings from her trust account, and she never made it. Gary also directed authorities to Auburn's West Hill near his and Judith's final dream home, where Marie Malvar's remains were found at the bottom of a steep cliff. Who was Marie Malvar? She had left home by 1983, taking a waitress job in her dad's restaurant. The customers found Marie friendly and outgoing, and she was a pretty decent waitress. Popular, trusting, she loved to dance. Unbeknownst to her family, Marie was also a sex worker with a boyfriend pimp. Yeah, this is why you don't date pimps. 
Judith watched all of this play out on TV, Gary in a one-piece jumpsuit, shackled wrists and ankles. How could this be the man she was married to for 14 years, she thought, as Linda gripped her tightly, holding her. Gary and Judith had gone to Kings County Fair, enjoying life, sharing, listening to music, and he dumped bodies there, in their place. As the knowledge that he was a killer sank in deeper and deeper, Judith just screamed with Linda holding her as she sobbed. Quote, that awful man, the one who killed all those poor girls, he was my hero. He was my everything to me, end quote. She confessed to Linda about finding the condoms in the garage and chopping the workbench to pieces so angry at Gary. She admitted when Gary told her he'd seen those prostitutes, that betrayal was the worst pain of her life. But now, hearing him admit to killing so many women, she was just numb and just couldn't comprehend it. And that is where I'm going to stop episode 60 the Dark Ages, on She Married the Green River Killer by Penny Wood. So much more to come. In episode 61, Second Cast, we follow Judith's rebirth as Gary faces a well-deserved, dismal future as he writes to Judith. We'll hear from the Ridgeway best friends, Jim and Linda Bailey, on the Gary and Judith they knew, and Gary himself speaks to author Penny Wood. We'll remember more of his victims as they were people with lives cut short and deserve to be remembered. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. Share anything with me at jill at murdershopbookclub.com or on Twitter or find me on Facebook and Instagram. An announcement. New warm weather designs are out on Spreadshop. So get your merch, t-shirts, sleeveless tanks, coffee mugs, thermos bottles. Go take a look. The links are on my blog at www.murdershopbookclub.com with my sources, photographs, show notes, recipes, wines, you know, you, you got it right now. Always trust your gut. And how about a five-star review? Because I'm really trying to grow the podcast and you can definitely give me help with this. So trust your gut. Happy reading. I see you as you hear me. Written by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna. Lyrics by Otto Harbach. Love mine, God, love and be.